Hello everyone and welcome back to Whitley Pin Talks. Today we've got John Karp and Kristen Sayeg to talk a little more about the PPP loan forgiveness program and what we know so far. Just so you are aware, this was a pre-recorded webinar, so if you would like to follow along with the accompanying slides, you can do so by visiting our website at WhitleyPin.com. We hope you enjoy. Hi, welcome everyone. So this is just a continuation as we started this PPP loan process. And now that we have the application, we are going to walk you through, Kristen and I, the application as, it, as we have it. Um, that they issued on May 15th. So just as a little disclaimer, as I start, when we very first started these presentations, I kind of joked at the beginning saying we were drinking through a fire hose. So what I wanted to make sure is that everybody knows that we are still drinking through that fire hose. And while we have guidance and we have an application, well, let me rephrase that. We really don't have guidance, but we have an application and we have some directions to that application. So, I think everybody has to consult their, their professional advisors, consult with your Whitley Penn advisor, and make sure that you're paying attention to all the FAQs that we may or may not get in reference to this application. And so Kristen, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself real quick. Sure, glad to be back with everyone. My name is Kristen Sayeg. I'm a tax senior manager in our Houston office, and I'll be helping John get through this application today. So, and it, Kristen is being very modest. She actually was helping me get through this application to, to today with you, all of you. Um, so I wanted to start first on this slide. So right, it came out last Friday, May 15th. They released the loan forgiveness application. I'm convinced they did it over the weekend so nobody could call anybody. And then the application has four required forms. PP loan forgiveness calculation form, representations and certifications form and schedule A. And then they have the schedule A compiles all of the information that you fill out on that schedule A worksheet. And then they have a demographic information form, but you know what, this is optional. And as I mentioned before, we have these, we really don't have any guidance. There's a lot of items that we're just waiting to see what happens. So they say they should be coming out in the next few days, a few hours. So it could be an hour by hour deal. All right, let's jump into the application. Um, we're gonna do this first section kind of with pictures. This is a picture of the top part of the loan forgiveness calculation form. That's the main form that you're gonna fill out. Um, you're gonna submit this application to your lender. Um, you're gonna continue to keep the relationship you have with your banker and submit this to your lender. I'm not gonna walk you through adding your name and address if you have problems with that, um, consult your tax advisor, I guess. Um, they getting... need to consult more than their tax advisor. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's right. So jumping into this part, um, they're going to want to know your PPP loan amount, the amount you received, and the, uh, the day that you received it, the disbursement date. Um, that disbursement date is going to be important because that's going to be generally the start of your eight-week period. Next, they've asked us to tell them the employees at the time of the loan application and the employees you had at the time of the forgiveness application. We don't see how this impacts the application whatsoever, but they're asking for it, so put it on there. We also don't know if it's number of employees or FTEs, but put a number on the application there. And then they ask, have you received 
the Economic Injury Disaster Loan Advance or the EIDL grant. Because, and they wanna know this because that's gonna decrease and reduce the amount of your forgiveness. So here's the, not only do you need to know the amount, but then you have to know the application number. Now I happen to have followed through one of these applications and when you're done, it gives you this number. Well, if you forgot to print it, I'm not sure how to find it again because in all the emails that we've received regarding the application, when we looked at the idle loan, nothing has the application number on it. So again, I think it's more important to know the amount, but I'm not sure how you'll find the application number if you did not save it. And then next, the SBA will look, if you look at the next section, it looks at the payroll frequency, right? So do you pay weekly, bi-weekly, twice a month, monthly, or others? And they're gonna use these to determine when payroll costs are paid or incurred and eligible for forgiveness. And that's gonna be used also in calculating the full-time equivalent. So the covered period, it's the eight week period beginning on the day you receive the loan disbursement. So hopefully for those who don't pay attention to the deposits in your bank account, you know which day you got this and you can go back in and find it because you have eight weeks from that day forward to, to calculate your disbursement period. Now Kristen's gonna go into some other details. Yeah, so this cover period is um, important to note because only costs paid or incurred during the eight-week period is going to be are going to be eligible for forgiveness. And there's a few different rules if we're talking about payroll costs or mortgage-written utilities. Specifically for payroll costs, payroll is considered paid on the day that the paychecks are distributed to the borrower or that the borrower originates the ACH credit or, or gives their employees a check. For example, if your pay period is April 1st through April 14th and you receive the loan on April 16th, but you pay your payroll on the 18th, you can use the forgivable funds for that payment because the payroll is considered paid during the eight week period. What we don't know at this time is how far back can you look if you, if you had payroll in March, but didn't pay it until April, do you get to include all of March in that calculation? This would kind of lead you to think maybe, uh, but we need more clarification on that. Additionally, for costs that are incurred, payroll is incurred on the day that the wages were earned. So if your pay period ends on the last day of your eight week period, but you don't pay your employees until the day after your eight week period, because those, the payroll, the, the wages were earned during the eight weeks, you're going to be able to include that in your forgivable funds, even though you actually write the check or make the ACH outside the eight-week period. Specifically for mortgage rent and utilities, any of those costs that you have during the eight-week period are going to be forgivable. And you're also fine including if they were incurred during the eight-week period, and paid by the next regular due date, even if it is outside the eight week period. So um, a little bit different there between payroll costs, mortgage rent and utilities. So be sure to check the dates and understand those rules. Now the next line on the form is something they're calling the alternative payroll covered period. And this is gives some people some flexibility for the eight week period, the 56 days that you're gonna be able to um, use the forgivable funds for related to payroll cost. You're allowed to choose an alternative payroll covered period beginning on the first, to, to be the first day 
of your first payroll following your disbursement date if your payroll is bi-weekly or more frequently. So if you have payroll that's a, a longer time period than that, maybe you pay once a month, you're not gonna be able to choose an alternative date. Um, but if it's bi-weekly or more frequent, you can choose this alternative date. This does not apply to rent mortgages and utilities, so you may be dealing with two different periods throughout the rest of the application. And anywhere the application says alternative payroll covered period, you're going to have to refer to this date if you choose to use an alternative date. Finally, the last part of this first portion of the, of the actual calculation form is where um, the $2 million come in, comes into play. We've received a safe harbor from the SBA saying that they're going to consider any loans less than $2 million to have been taken in good faith and, um, you know, that the people receiving them really need them. So if you are a small borrower, do not check this box uh, because they're going to look at any loans greater than $2 million. Uh, if you receive more than $2 million, you definitely want to check this box um, and uh, but if less than two million leave this box blank that's actually been one of the, the if you go back to that previous slide sure that's actually been one of the, the questions before they gave us guidance that was one of the main I mean if I had the most asked question it was am I going to be subject to an audit am I going to be subject to an audit and so I think this is very helpful but so that's why you really want to make sure you don't check the box because if you are less than 2 million, you don't want to subject yourself to that audit. That's right. So, all right. So now let's calculate starting with the schedule a worksheet. So the schedule a worksheet has four computations. The first computation we have to look at is elbow compensation for each employee. Then you have to calculate the compensation cap of hundred thousand dollars per employee on an annualized basis. And then you determine the number of full-time equivalent employees. And then you use the FTEs to determine if a reduction of eligible forgiveness is required. So what's employee compensation? One is you have to identify each employee, but do not include independent contractors. They are not eligible for forgiveness. Self-employed individuals. Now don't worry, the forgiveness for payroll cost is 850 seconds of line 31 of the individual's 2019 Schedule C. It just comes later in the form. Owner employees, again, these are included later in the form. And then partners, these are also included later. So this is really just employees that you pay. So in table one, you list employees with annualized compensation for all pay periods in 2019 of less than $100,000. Now recognize there's still no guidance on bonuses given. And what does that mean? What if you pay someone a $100,000 compensation package or gross salary, and then you give them a $10,000 bonus? Well, that equals $110,000. So where do you put that? Well, absent guidance, I would say I don't put it on this schedule because in 2019, their annualized total compensation was over 110,000, was over $100,000, it was 110. Having said that, we really don't know. Um, if you also look down on the, where you have the employee's name, what's the employee identifier? Well, if you read the directions, and I would say anybody who's filling one of these out, spend some time in the directions because this is the last four digits of the employee's social security number. And the reason why I'm bringing that up is everybody looks at examples of, and even in our examples coming up, we have employee A, employee B, but it's a specific identifier. And then of course you have your cash compensation 
in your average FTE and your salary in your wage reduction. Yeah, so let's take a look at those other columns John just mentioned. First, starting with cash compensation. I don't really know why they called it cash cash compensation. This is really salary um, and, and other forms of compensation, but this includes salary, wages, commissions, or similar compensation, payments of cash tips or equivalent, payments for vacation, parental, family, medical, or sick leave, and allowance for dismissal or separation. This does not include the compensation of an employee in excess of the annual salary of $100,000. If we drill anything into you, it would be to not enter more than $15,384 in this column for table one or table two, or we'll talk about it again later when we talk about um, owner compensation. You know, hey, co Kristen, uh -huh. I, think, I think it's important to notice that when we talk about that, it's because I think a lot of people would just take 100,000 divided by 12, so they would come up with $8,333. And so I think the important part for everybody to recognize, you have to take that 100,000 and divide it by 52, and then multiply it by eight. And so I think, I think there'll be several people who may see that $15,000 number and be a little surprised. That's right. Yeah, you're, you're right, John. It, they base everything, they really take it back to eight weeks of the 52 weeks rather than thinking about maybe two months of the 12 months. They're thinking 852. Um, any compensation of an employee, this is also not included, any compensation of an employee whose principal pace of residence is outside of the United States. And if you had any um, of the new credits from the CARES Act, the Qualified Family Leave Wages, um, credit or the sick leave wages credit, you would not include that here as well. The next column on table one is average FTE. How do you calculate the FTE? You're going to take the average number of hours worked during the cover period or during your alternative period if you selected one of those and divide by 40 before rounding to the nearest tenth. The maximum each employee can get is 1.0. You can look at all the actual hours, or they have given us a simplified method to which we can say that every employee that works 40 hours gets 1.0, and each employee that works less than 40 hours gets 0.5. You're going to want to choose whichever method gives you the maximum FTEs. And I did steal these examples from Tony Nitti. Um, he's a writer for Forbes and has a really great deep dive into this this um, application. So I want to give him credit for the examples that I took from him. Um, but in this example, you can see the detailed FTE where we actually looked at like for employee C, his hours of 28 divided by 40 gives him a 0.7, where the simplified method would say he's just less than 40, let me give him a 0.5. Ultimately, when we do that all the way to the bottom, the detailed FTE is going to be 3.7, which is more than the simplified method. So in this case, this person would want to use the detailed method because we want to get that FTE number as high as possible. Well, now let's go still on table one. Let's look at the column on the salary, salary hourly wage, wage reduction. So loan forgiveness will be reduced by any reduction in the total annual salary or average wages of an employee during the covered eight week period who did not receive wages or salary in 2019 of more than $100,000. So this may actually be a perk that if you go back to the beginning when I talked about the 100,000 and the bonus, well, that means that you could take them out of this calculation. Reduction 
is required if the reduction in wages is in excess of 25% of the total salary wages from January 1st, 2020 through March 31st, 2020. So if you gave someone a pay cut, it was in excess of 25%, then you're gonna to have to have a reduction. Steps to determine the amount of the reduction must be done by employee. So just because your total payroll is the same, it's by employee. So determine the average annual salary or hourly wage for each employee during that eight week period. You determine the average annual salary for each employee from January 1st, 2020 through March 31st, 2020. You divide step one by step two. If step three is greater than 75%, then you have no reduction. And then it is required and you don't have to fill out this column in table one for the employee. If step three is less than 75%, a reduction could be required, so stay tuned. So if step three is less than 75%, for a salaried employee, multiply that amount determined by step two by 75%. Subtract from that result the amount from step one, take this result divided by 52, then multiply by eight. John, it seems like people may wanna refer back to these slides for these calculations. My Absolutely. head's kind of spinning. Well, and I think the real, the real issue is that remember, this is employee by employee. So perhaps if you have a payroll company, they may be able to run the formulas for you, maybe. But if you're a business and you pay your employees and you have 50 employees and you're doing this yourself, this could be labor intensive. So... Um, if you look down for an hourly employee, just calculate the average number of hours worked per week from January 1st, 2020 through March 31st, 2020. You multiply by 75% of step two, less step one, and you take this result and multiply by eight. So, you know, wow, what? If you're lost, that's great because most of us are. Um, and that's probably what most of you were saying was what? Well, let's look an example. If you take employee A has an annual salary for 2019, $100,000. Paid $20,000 from January 1st, 2020 through March 31st, 2020. Paid $8,000 during the eight-week covered period. So step one, determine that average salary or hourly wage for each employee during the eight-week period. $52,000, right? $8,000 divided by eight times 52. Determine the average annual salary for each employee from January 1st through March 31st, 2020, 80,000, 20,000 times four. Divide step one by step two, 65%, 52,000 divided by 80,000. So again, if step three is greater than 75%, there's no reduction is required, Well, right? And you don't have to fill out this column, but of course we weren't gonna do that for this example. And this isn't our example. Again, this was borrowed from Tony Nitty's presentation, so we'll give him some more credit here. But for a salary employee, multiply the amount determined by step two by 75%, 60,000, 80,000 times 75%, subtract from that result amount from step one, 8,000, which is the 60 minus the 52. You take this result divided by 52, then multiply by eight, and you get a $1,230 reduction. So it's a lot of work that you'll see for what may not amount to great reduction. 
And we couldn't let that just be the end of it. Of course, there's more calculations to do, even though we got down to that 1,230 number. Um, there is a safe harbor. No reduction is going to be required if this safe harbor is met. Um, the calculation for that is going to be de to determine the annual salary, salary, sal salary or hourly wages as of February 15th, 2020. Also determine the annual salary from February 15th through April 26th of 2020. If step two is greater than step one, the safe harbor does not apply. But if it is less than step one, keep going. You're going to have to look at the average annual salary or hourly wages for employees as of June 30th. And if that amount is equal to or greater than step one, the safe harbor has been met. So another example from Tony Nitty, annual salary of 75,000 as of February 15th. Between February 15th and April 26th, the salary was reduced to 55,000. But by June 30th, the salary was put back to 75,000. So because the amount in step one, it, it, because the average annual salary as of June 30th is equal to or greater than the amount from February 15th, the safe harbor is met and we do not have to reduce the forgivable amount by 1,230. So um, the instructions for the forgiveness application lay out how to do this for an hourly employee, but important to note again that this is done on an employee by employee basis and you're obviously going to have to pull a lot of specific payroll dates and amounts paid um, to, to really work this equation all the way through. Everything we just talked about was for table one on the Schedule A worksheet. Now we're looking at table two. Table two is where you're going to list any employees with annual compensation of more than 100000 the total compensation for these employees, again, cannot exceed 15385 The best part about this table is that there's no salary hourly wage reduction column. Very difficult to say uh, because that limit does not apply to employees who earn more than 100000 So you're just going to have to look at their cash compensation and average FTE. Right. So if you're looking at the FTEs, Remember that there could be your loan forgiveness can be reduced if your payer headcount, which is your FTEs, reduces during the eight-week period. So here's just some safe harbors, right? So you enter the borrower's total FTEs from February 15th, 2020, and April 26th. You follow the same method that was used to calculate the average FTE in the PPP Schedule A worksheet tables. So you sum across all employees and enter. You enter the borrower's total FTE in the borrower's pay period inclusive of February 15th, 2020. You follow the same method used in step one. And, it, and this is right from the form. If the entry for step two is greater than the step one, proceed to step four. The FTE reduction safe harbor is not applicable and the borrower must complete line 13. So again, they give you something else to do. And then you enter the borrower's total FTE as of June 30th, 2020. So if the like so if the entry for step four is greater than or equal to step two you enter one and we're going to go through some other calculations here so fte reduction calculation forgiveness will be reduced if your average number of fte fte's during the covered p 
period is less than the average during the following periods. You get to choose this beginning February 2019 and ending June 30th, 2019, beginning January 1st, 2020, and ending February 29th, 2020. And then if you're a seasonal employer, check the SBA definition, but either one or two above, or you know, you get to choose any 12 week period between May 1st, 2019 and September 15th, 2019. So that's a pretty nice thing because you have your choice. And here's just an example. So again, you look at your, you know, the loan must be reduced by multiplying costs by the eligible forgiveness. And so you can see where you have your eight week period, your detail for A, B, C, D, and E. And you can see where you have 3.7 during the detailed FTE and you have 3.5 during the eight week. Well, since earlier in the example, if you remember we used 3.7, then we need to use the 3.7 divided by the 6.4 because when we, cho we chose February 15th, 2019, June 30th, 2019, and you can see how we made some of those reductions and what that looks like. So, and then there's, there's more safe harbor. So look at two additional periods, period one, February 15th, 2020 through April 26, 2020, and period two, pay period that includes February 15th, 2020. So if the average FTEs for period one is less than period two, then compare period two to the total FTEs as of June 30th, 2020. If June 30th, 2020 is greater, the safe harbor is met and you don't get a reduction. So basically, basically if you can put your FTEs back to at least what they were for period two, the pay period that includes February 15th by June 30th, you are good even if February 15th is less than 2019 or the first two month averages. So it also kind of says to you that if your loan forgiveness or if your loan period ends, your eight week period ends on June 3rd, you still can't submit your paperwork till June after June 30th because that's a date you still get to use. Other considerations that will not count as a reduction in FTEs. Well, if you made a good faith written offer to rehire an employee and the, off, the employee said, thanks, but no thanks. I already found a new job. I don't see that happening in this crazy dynamics, but it could have happened. The employee was fired for cause. What happens if you furloughed an employee and then you went back and you fired them? An employee voluntarily resigned or voluntarily asked to receive a reduction in hours. So as, as long as, and you can list that, but you, and you need to save that documentation in your files. Okay, so to this point, we have filled out basically the top form, top part of the calculation form, which was our name and dates and loan number, et cetera. And we've now completed Schedule A worksheet. Now we're kind of going back to Schedule A form, not worksheet, and, and seeing what this has. And a lot of this will pull numbers from Schedule A worksheet, um, especially this first half, lines one through five, it's all these lines say from worksheet A. So you're just going to pull the numbers that you completed from worksheet A. Line six, seven, and eight start to address the non-cash compensation payroll piece. The amounts that we can include in forgivable costs, in, these are amounts that we can include in forgivable costs in addition to payroll costs. That includes employee health insurance, employee retirement plans, and employer state and local assessed 
taxes on employee compensation. There's not the $100,000 cap on these amounts. So this is where you're going to add in these other non-cash compensation areas. Additionally, we get to line nine, which says compensation to owner employees, self-employed individuals, and general partners. These people you're not going to list on the worksheet in table one or table two. What's a little troublesome about this line is that there's a little bit new information in the instructions. And it says that this line is to be capped at the lesser of 15,384, the number we're all familiar with, or 850 seconds of your 2019 compensation. So S-Corp owners, um, self-employed individuals who receive, um, you know, compensation in form of wages, you're, you're going to be limited to your 2019 compensation potentially here. And, and that's something new we haven't seen yet. The instructions do not require that these payments to be compensation. So guaranteed payments would also be included here which could be problematic if you were in a partnership that didn't issue guaranteed payments for some reason. Um, the 2019 limit is, is going to be um, maybe troublesome. Um, also, what we do not see here is a place to include health insurance and retirement costs attributable to owners and general partners. Hopefully we get more guidance to come on this. Um, we think that this is an area that could use some clarification, but this is how we understand it to be right now. Next, we get to line 10, which is easy. It's down there at the bottom of this form where we've shown the full form, lines one through three, lines four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine. Line 10, you're just gonna add the numbers that they've listed. So that's just simple arithmetic. So the FTE reduction calculation. So this is, you can kind of hear if you read this, if you have not reduced the number of your employees or the average paid hours of your employees between January 1st, 2020 and the end of the covered period, check here and you just get a skip 11, 12, and you just enter one on line 13. So otherwise you have 11, you have to enter average FTE during the borrower's chosen reference period and then your total FTEs, you had lines two and five, and then you have your FTE reduction quotient, which would be you divide line 12 by line 11, or you enter one if you've met your safe harbor. Now we actually get to get back to the actual application. So on that application, there are four expense categories. Line one, payroll, payroll costs. Use amounts from schedule A, line 10. Line two, Business mortgage interest payments. It only covers interest. Must be a liability of the borrower on real or personal property. And it has to be a loan you had that was before February 15th, 2020. Line three is business rent or lease payments. Again, it has to be a lease agreement in force before February 15th, 2020. Business utility payments. It's payments for service for the distribution of electricity, gas, water, transportation, telephone, internet access. And again, it's for service that you had prior to February 15th, 2020. 
And then remember, it can be paid or incurred during the eight-week period. Also remember, no more than 25% of the loan forgiveness may be attributable to these, these non-payroll costs in line two, three, and four. Uh, the next section of the loan application is going to account for adjustments for reductions. You're going to use amounts from Schedule A to reduce the eligible forgiveness amount. This will include a salary and hourly wage reduction that we calculated and I can't say correctly. Um, then you're going to add the amounts from lines one, two, three, and four and subtract them um, and, and subtract line five, which is your wage reduction, and then potentially also adding in your FTE reduction um, amount on line seven. We're getting close to the end. Um, line eight, in nine and 10 is where they kind of grab any potential amounts that could be forgiven. Line eight is your modified total. So that's gonna be line six and seven multiplied by each other. Line nine is your total PPP loan amount. And line 10, they actually take your payroll cost and divide it by 0.75, effectively grossing it up to what would be a forgivable amount, assuming you had spent 75% of it on payroll. Um, these are all just potential loan forgiveness amounts. It's not until we get to line 11 where it actually shows us the true forgiveness amount. And that's simply going to take be taking the smallest of line 8, 9, and 10. Line 11, we made it. We figured out how much we can be forgiven. So what are our next steps? One, again, you're going to submit this application to your lender that is servicing the loan. That is servicing the loan. You want to have documentation. Page 10 of the application has almost a page or a page and a half of detailed instructions on what kind of documentation to submit with your loan, as well as what documentation you should have on file if you were to ever be audited for this. Again, we don't think audits are going to happen unless your loan is more than $2 million, but always good to have that documentation. Then you have to wait. The lender has 60 days after the date on which they received the application to issue a decision on the application. So we wanted to go through a few more questions that you might be having, especially since um, we're doing a recording of this and there may be things that we think have popped into your head as this has gone on. So um, we'll jump right into those. First, you might be thinking, I normally fund my 2020 retirement plan contribution at the end of the year. Should I push that funding into the eight-week period? We need a little more guidance on that, and that may be a recurring theme to our answers here. Um, we don't really see anything that says you can't, but we don't really see anything that says you can. Also, what if you're in a position where you still have part of your 2019 retirement plan to fund? Could that be covered if paid within the eight-week period? We don't see a direct answer to that yet. Number two, what should you consider when opting for the alternative eight-week period? That's going to really have to come down to you laying out your payroll schedule and laying out your eight-week period and see if you can maximize some sort of forgiveness by choosing an alternative method. Method. Um, remember that you can only do that if you're if you pay biweekly or more more quickly than that. So not everyone's going to be able to have the option to choose. But um, you know, it'll just be a matter of laying out your payroll calendar and seeing when you make payments and, and if they would be forgiven. 
Do the forgiveness requirements only need to be met during the eight-week covered period? We only really have guidance on how to spend the money during the eight-week period. Once we get out of the eight-week period, it's now a loan. And we know that they have um, given us areas that we can um, use the money for, but beyond that, rules like the 7525, we don't have clarification yet on if that's going to be applicable when it becomes a loan. John, do you have thoughts on that? Well, I mean, they, it's really, it's quite fascinating because if you think about it, there's some things that go till June 30th, and again, it turns into a loan, and they, they don't give us real guidance. I mean, my, my thoughts are, I think you could, there's definitively, they, the goal was not for you to spend it on anything but other than payroll and the list of items. But, you know, I'll go out of order here. Um, you know, if you, if you think about the loan and it talked about the original tax, or the original tax, the original legislation that came out was that you could use those loan proceeds to just pay interest on debt that was in existence before, right? The, you know, before February 15th and before just on any other debt. And yet when you look at the forgive, forgiveness calcs, that doesn't exist. So my thought is that there's a little bit of guidance we need because based upon the law that was written, I'd say, well, you could pay the interest on pre-existing debt. It just isn't going to be forgiven. And so, but again, we don't know. And I, and I also, um, just this thought just popped into my mind that just remember you have this 60 day window that your, your bank could come back and start asking you a bunch of questions. But again, I don't know if they can go outside the scope and, you know, going to the very bottom, maybe the FAQs will give us a little guidance in that nature too. Um, you know, question four, is wage reduction on a per employee or overall payroll basis? You know, wage reduction is employee by employee that you can't just look at your overall payroll. And uh, that's, you know, like it's going to be a very arduous process if you're doing this yourself too. Um, labor intensive. When we applied for the PPP loan, we understood payments of outstanding debt to be qualified for forgiveness. I think I just addressed that. You know, it's not for forgiveness, but again, it said you could use the money for that. And then, you know, I think another question is, what is a clear definition of utility? Someone keeps asking me, hey, transportation, does that mean my car? And, you know, I don't see anything about fuel and autos and gas and oil changes for cars written into the legislation. So I think we're going to need some guidance on, on what to do with that transportation window in the true spirit of what it means for that utilities um, doctrine. Otherwise, I think utilities is pretty clear with your internet, your electric distribution, and those things. Um, again, I stated just a few seconds ago that the FAQs are supposed to be issued in the next coming days. Hopefully, maybe even if they're really fast about it, by the time you're listening to this, they've already been issued and, and there's some more guidance. Um, here's just another disclaimer that remember, Things are changing fast. Things are constantly changing. So if you're a Whitley Penn client, please email your WP professional. If you're a Whitley Penn guest, please email your questions to caresact at whitleypenn.com that's been set up. Both Kristen and I monitor that email. 
And then I really do encourage everyone to go to our website homepage, click sign up in the upper right hand corner to get the latest updates and select tax alert because what obviously what's going to be coming right after this is when we get those FAQs and uh, just, just a little teaser, we're going to get those FAQs coming out. And if you're at all into politics, you know, there's a lot of stuff happening in Washington. It's all around that PPP loan and, and we'll be putting out some future, whether they're live or recorded, we'll be putting out some future posts and some future webinars for everybody to listen to. And with that, Kristen, I can't thank you enough for all of your help. And both Kristen and I would like to thank everybody who's watched this. Thank you.